There have been growing concerns about the advancement of artificial intelligence and how it could cause some pretty dystopian outcomes to our society. And some experts even think that it could cause human extinction. So within the AI community, we've seen a large number of people who have urged a pause in the development of the most advanced AI systems. The problem is we do not have a pause button. Governments are floundering. No one has the authority to make this stop or make it be done safely. And simply begging huge corporations to avoid billions of dollars in profit is not going to work. We need something else. So today we're going to talk about how we might actually build a pause button and how we could create institutions that are able to manage safety in this very important space. Let's dig in. Welcome to the Human Survival Podcast, where we aim for world cooperation on critical threats to humanity. To survive, we must see ourselves first as citizens of the human race. To thrive, we must protect what is beautiful about humanity. This show is offered by the Human Survival Project a grassroots movement for citizens around the world to push for a redesigned and much stronger United Nations. Our global threats need global cooperation. This is urgent, so let's start. Hi friends, welcome to the Human Survival Podcast. I'm Shelby Murtis. Thanks for joining us. So today we are going to talk about artificial intelligence, which as you may have heard is a big deal lately. Um, the this show is part of the Human Survival Project, which is a global grassroots effort to push for a much stronger United Nations that's capable of dealing with the various existential threats to humanity. And we see advancing technology as one of those threats. Um, obviously, technology can be awesome, tools that help us do good things, um, so we're not necessarily anti-technology, but there are some that seem um, pretty risky, including artificial intelligence. So we have um, many experts in the field warning us that superintelligent computers could um, lead to human extinction which we'll talk about. Um, but even short of that, there are some pretty dystopian outcomes that we worry about. Things like massive disinformation that can make it hard to know what's true, which makes public discourse and politics really difficult. Um, things like aut autonomous weapons, uh, changing the, na uh, the nature of warfare and accelerating it. Uh, massive job displacement, um, and a whole bunch of other things that can really disrupt society. So we've got our eye on this, and um, you know, as time goes on, we'll be developing proposals for how the world might deal with this. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And our guest is very qualified to talk about this. Yup uh, Mindertsma. Um, is the founder of Pause AI. Uh, Pause AI is an organization, um, as you might guess, uh, suggesting that we pause some of our most advanced uh, AI technologies until we can regroup and figure out how to do it safely. Yoop, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Shelby. 
Yeah. So let's start by just filling our listeners on you and the organization and, you know, kind of how you got to this point and what you're trying to do. Uh, similar to the Human Survival Project, uh, Pause AI is also a grassroots uh, movement. So at some point, I started being emotionally worried about AI. And that moment was, I think, in April this year. And after scientists had basically drafted that Pause AI letter and many signed it, I felt like this needs to become reality and I want to do my part in this. And... Uh, I met with a bunch of really inspiring people, for example, from the Existential Risk Observatory, which is in Amsterdam. I met a bunch of people who wanted to organize a protest. We got together. We organized our first protest in uh, Brussels not, uh, shortly after that. We started a Discord server, uh, set up a website, and suddenly there's this group of people who all want to pause AI and try to you know, actually implement that as much as possible. So we're a volunteer movement. Uh, we do protests, we do um, lobbying actions where we like send emails to, to politicians, for example. Uh, we do flyering on the streets. Basically everything to get people to talk and think about this, this subject so we can work towards uh, a halt. So obviously I have my list of worries and concerns that I carry around with me, um, <laughs> which I feel emotionally around this. Um, but why don't you share yours? I mean, what um, what worries you about uh, the development of AI these days? So I have a really like two-sided relationship with technology and AI specifically, because uh, I'm a software engineer. I have a software company. Uh, I like open source technology. I like software. I like new gadgets and shiny new toys. And I really enjoy playing with all the AIs out there. Uh, but there's a couple of reasons to be concerned. And you mentioned a few already, right? You mentioned uh, job displacement, uh, fake news, ruining our democracy in various ways. Um, but the risk that, that for me personally is the most, seems like one of the most likely and the biggest ones is the cybersecurity risk. That's not necessarily an existential risk, but it is a very big risk because so much of our society right now depends on our technology functioning, right? If you go to the supermarket, you pay with your phone probably, and uh, all the food is being ordered using some sort of software running on a server somewhere. Um, the farmers order their components and their um, source materials from another location using the internet. So if something were to happen to the internet, that would be a really bad thing. And one of the things that a very powerful AI will be able to do is find security vulnerabilities. There's basically ways in which you can manipulate a program to do it to, or a device to make it do something else, to disable it or make it malicious or whatever. And this capability um, is fundamentally dangerous because when it exists, there is a gap between fixing the holes in security um, and exploiting them. That's because when you are able to find security exploits in code, it takes a while before you can actually patch them. It takes a couple of weeks. And these couple of weeks on average are what is called the window of vulnerability. So my main concern of AI is that at some point we will have an AI 
that reduces the costs of finding these zero-day vulnerabilities from about $100,000 to a couple of cents. And when that happens, someone could launch a wide-scale cyber attack. And I feel that this capability is very likely to emerge before we have even more dangerous AIs that could lead to other risks. So maybe we can talk about these other risks later. Maybe I want to hear about what do you think about this cybersecurity threat? Do you do you share this concern? Yes, I do share this concern. And, you know, basically, um, I think what we're doing is, you know, we know that in our human society, we have bad people and we have clueless people. And we're about to make them far more powerful. And so, you know, there's bad people in the world who do bad things. You know, I think most humans are good people, but there are some bad guys out there. And we are about to give them incredibly powerful tools um, to hack into banks and steal money, to impersonate people, to do identity theft, to shut down important systems like food systems, electric, electricity systems, you know, water systems, companies, governments, you know, that will be powerful, uh, possible. And, you know, I don't, most people in the world are not going to do that kind of bad stuff. But we know there's already um, hackers and folks out there who already do bad things digitally. Um, we're about to make them far more powerful. So, and, you know, part of what worries me on this front, too, is that the development of AI is going so fast. And so we might say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we'll have time to figure it out. You know, we'll mount a defense if somebody, you know, invents that. But when things are going exponentially, like, you know, the, the doubling of computer speed or, or power or whatever, you know, you're, you're like on a vertical graph now, you know, um, and, and as that accelerates, um, it might just happen far too quick for people to respond to, you know, certainly governments. One of the core issues of governments is that they tend to respond to things uh, retroactively, as a, reactively as a response. Uh, instead of um, anticipating certain problems. So when the car was invented and there were accidents uh, on, on, on highways or whatever, uh, it, it took a while before we invented seatbelts. It took even longer before seatbelts were compulsory. First, I had to die a lot of people. And I think that type of making policy after you see things go wrong has been working quite well for most problems in the world. But it stops to work in a, sub, in a couple of situations. It doesn't work for climate change, for example. And it also doesn't work for AI. Well, you know, something on that that, it, you know, what worries me about technology is it's not just about artificial intelligence itself, which I think a lot of people, as they consider it, sort of zoom in and focus on just that as a tool. But I look over history, it, several other examples where technology has not been managed well. And so I see this human tendency to be slow 
to wake up to the effects of it. Sort of like do it first and deal with the consequences later is kind of how society works. So, I mean, you mentioned climate change, but that really extends to all the many technologies with which we extract resources from Earth and turn it into products that we like. That's great stuff, except for we destroy our planet that we live on. And we're now facing a future where billions of people could die or suffer or have to migrate because there's food shortages and water shortages and, you know, we've screwed up the earth, right? So the intention of just making cool things that we like that help us, you know, have a nice life, you know, the consequences are like always somebody else's. It doesn't really get integrated into the thought process of like what everybody's doing, you know? Or you could extend that to like forever chemicals, right? That are like, yeah, they're good. They're nice water repellents and fire retardants, but then like they cause cancer and it's in our water and it's now in our bodies and it's all throughout nature causing cancer <laughs> throughout nature, you know? And yet it's even in our food packaging. And it's like, oh, nobody seems willing to say no or control any of this, you know? Um, it's really tough to witness, so. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting uh, problems is that some sectors are very safety conscious. So for example, if you build a bridge, I mean, if you ask engineers about what is the most important thing about their job, they're probably going to say something similar to safety, or a large part of them is going to say something akin to that, right? They have all these processes. They're really obsessed with making things that are safe. I think you see a similar type of culture when you look at pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical industry, right? These are also, they have really strong, strict programs where they have to test for all sorts of types of danger. But then you look at the software sector, basically the so sector that I operate in as well, and there is just virtually no safety culture. There's like this, you know, just move fast and break things culture. You try things out and since it's software, you can also always deploy a new version and fix something later. And I think this culture is currently what is driving AI progress. There's not a lot of very safety, um, safety first type of mentality in there. Mm -hmm. And if you combine that with the retroactive approach of policymaking, where we first have to see some sort of problem before we act. And if you combine that with our psychological tendency to underestimate exponential growth and our psychological tendency to ignore things that are really, really dangerous, right? We, we don't like thinking about our own mortality, let alone the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Then you have a really wicked problem. Yeah, indeed. And now we also require global coordination. Mm -hmm. There are just so many dimensions about AI risk that make it such a hard issue. But before I become too doomy, I must also say that there are some reasons why we should be optimistic because the public uh, is pretty much supportive of pausing. If I recall correctly, 70% uh, of US citizens are in favor of slowing down AI progress. 
over 60% of US citizens are in favor of banning the creation of superhuman intelligence. Mm -hmm. So many people are already in favor of this. And it also seems pretty doable. I mean, all of the AIs currently being trained that are actually at a possible potentially dangerous level require highly specific hardware that's only being designed by one company, NVIDIA. And all of these chips are being printed by one specific factory, uh, TSMC. And all of the components required to make that factory are built by a specific other factory, ASML. So we got this very predictable, linear, controllable pipeline. And I think it's really important that people realize that halting AI development isn't as impossible as one might intuitively think. Mm -hmm. And it is also not as extremist as some people sometimes seem to think. Many people agree that this is a sensible policy measure. However, I still haven't managed to convince one politician to actually run for this and, you know, focus on this issue and accept the weight on their shoulders that they need to be the ones to implement this. Mm -hmm. So in my view, one of the largest problems in all of this is are like the psychological uh, is the psychological component. I'm, I'm pretty sure you've seen similar issues, right? You focus on things that threaten the existence of humanity. Um, and and in, in my opinion, our human psychology is just really bad at dealing with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. Um, for reasons that you mentioned, you know, it's emotionally difficult to think about. Um, and people tend to look backwards more than forwards. So this work requires imagining future scenarios that have not happened yet. Um, and our history of governance has all been has been mostly about reacting to the last, you know, problem that happened. So it is a very tricky problem, you know. I mean, the way I'm thinking about this, I'm I'm noticing we've had this public discussion over the last year or something as ChatGPT came around, and then there's been. Um, you know, the, the sign-on letter that a bunch of experts suggested a pause for six months. Um, but nobody talks about how we don't have a pause button. Like, there's no way to pause. We don't have a pause button. <laughs> we have to build a pause button, you know, so that we can actually pause. Like, there's no one with the authority to make it pause. And, you know, the best, it is scary. That's what scares me, is that we don't have any ability to control this. So even um, if we decide exactly how we want to regulate artificial intelligence, we don't even have the agencies set up to do that, even within countries or within the EU that have the authority to do that well, much less internationally, which is essential, you know? And so... This was one of the, the most, like, sobering things I realized. I, I had a conversation with, with, with Dutch politicians about this. I basically explained to them some of the risks and what I think they should, be, should do. And they responded basically saying, 
what what can I do, right? What can the Netherlands do? We don't have the policy measures in place. We need to do something internationally. And they were like at a loss. They felt like, I don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. I also spoke with the European Commission and I received a very similar type of response. Like, yeah, what, what can I do, right? What can What can we do? We can only regulate the EU. We have the AI Act, but how do we regulate the US? And the answer obviously is you need to do something internationally and you need to lead this, right? Mm -hmm. So from basically the moment we started at Opasriai, I've been laser focused on getting a treaty, getting a summit. We need a summit. That summit leads, needs to lead to a treaty because that's the type of international policy that has worked in the past, right? I mean, we have done things like ban CFCs or uh, ban blinding, blinding laser weapons before. We could probably ban the development of a super intelligence in a similar way. Mm -hmm. All it takes is like someone to stand up and lead a treaty and a summit. Mm -hmm. So then uh, Rishi Sunak organized uh, an AI safety summit. Uh, and he's they the leader this of the in UK. November. Exactly. The UK prime minister uh, had a discussion with Sam Altman, the CEO of uh, OpenAI, and Demis Sabis, the CEO of uh, DeepMind. And he basically got scared of AI existential risk and thought, well, we need to do something. I'm going to organize a summit. So when we heard about that summit, we were just stoked, right? Oh my God, yes, an international leader is, is basically taking charge of this. We do have adults in the room and they are going to organize a summit, which means we're probably going to get a treaty. And now that summit uh, has, uh, has happened, it didn't lead to a treaty. It actually didn't lead to any serious, concrete international policy measures that are enforceable in any way. And to me, that was really devastating news, although I kind of saw it coming from a, you know, we could see it coming, but it was still, yeah, it, it, it gave this feeling of there still is nobody really in charge of this, right? Mm -hmm. It would be nice if we had something like a UN AI committee that actually had the authority to say, no, you cannot release your models or no, you cannot train this AI model. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't have anything like that. And we currently don't have anyone trying to implement this at a serious level. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the main reason why we protest. That's the main reason why we're lobbying to make sure that somebody understands that they need to stand up, somebody in power, um, to make sure that we have some sort of international governance me mechanism to prevent the very worst from happening. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons this is not happening is because of this psychological you know, this psychological, this emotional weight of realizing that you have to be the one to do this. Mm -hmm. Feeling this responsibility, I think, is something that is something, something that we want to push away. And that's something that I say that because I feel that very strongly. I want to push away my responsibility every single day. Every time I work at, on Pazai, I feel like I, I don't, I don't want to do this. It just, it just feels it just feels like too much to handle in a way because the stakes are way too high. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to push it away. I want someone else to to take that responsibility and, and you know, make sure the treaty gets gets in place. And every time I get like a small, you know, hint of hope, that feels amazing. But then when I feel let down because it doesn't actually lead to a treaty, <laughs> it just feels so much, uh, so, so worse again. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think a lot of people feel that same desire to not take responsibility or that, you know, let somebody else solve that. 
there must be somebody out there who's working on it, right? But that's not how it works. <laughs> There's nobody in charge here. And, and that's scary in itself that we're just, we're on, it's like we're driving a very fast vehicle that has no brakes and no steering. Yeah, yeah. We're just going and nobody's driving this thing. And so we have to build the ability to manage ourselves, you know, and, and it goes even wider than artificial intelligence. I mean, this um, dynamic of nobody in charge or nobody able to stop something important. I mean, that's happening on climate change. That's happening on pandemics. That's happening on like a whole bunch of issues where we're just watching the disaster unfold and we don't have the means to deal with it. So, I mean, that's Do why we have examples where this did end, hopefully. Like, where, when did this type of stuff end up well? Where, when did we have, like, heroes who actually, actually did it, right? You know, I think a lot of this... I mean, I, despite the bigness of all of this, I still feel optimism that it's possible. Like, big changes have happened before. I think a lot of those success stories have been at the national level or below where, um, you know, within countries that like amazing things have happened. I mean, over the course of history, you know, we went from um, a pretty primitive, belligerent, poverty stricken human race to now where, you know, relative to that, we have ourselves well organized and we've put behind us things like slavery and murder and rape and like horrible things that used to be common, which still happens somewhat, but we have a legal structure and a cultural expectation that those things are bad. We're not doing that anymore, you know? Um, And, and those were enormous changes that people thought were impossible. But they got done when people rallied together and decided to both change the culture, but then also have that institutionalized in government to then um, sort of enforce that expectation that culture has decided, no, we're not doing that anymore, or we're going to put guardrails, or we're going to have rules, or, you know, um, it's the culture coming together and enacting its desires, you know, through government action. So it has happened before, but now it just has to happen internationally, because now we're at such an interconnect, a globally interconnected stage of human development That, that international governance has not caught up with our interconnectivity as a human race around the world. So we have to now build those structures internationally to, as humans, enact our common will of like wanting to survive ourselves or, you know, wanting to survive. So. I think in many ways, uh, what, what, is, what is keeping this from happening is a a taboo on a global government, right? People really fear this idea of having one single government because it feels, I can, I can understand why people fear this, right? It, it feels like an end game. 
-hmm. It's a situation where you can no longer escape from. Once we have one global government, maybe it will be unchangeable. What if the powers that be just grab more and more power? How do we ever escape that? Um, I think this fear is, is, is one of the biggest, biggest breaks on fixing these global scale issues. What are your thoughts on this? These are legitimate fears and we have to listen to them and they can even um, inspire us to do this well. So I don't want to just give massive power to a global government, government that's going to make our lives horrible. You know, um, it has to be well constructed, learning from the experiences politically of the many countries around the world. Like we now have hundreds of years of experience on how to design a government in many different ways that we can learn from. So we can take the best ideas from all these different governments and, you know, package them together into a new United Nations that functions better. You know, it would also have to be very um, accountable to citizens in a way that it's not currently. So right now, I don't get to vote for my delegate in the United Nations. You know, my president decides who he or someday she is going to send um, to represent us. I have no impact over that. And so changing that when citizens can elect their leaders in the UN and have more engagement there at the UN, then it'll be a focal point for citizenship in a way that it's just currently not. So that's why today, you know, most people are going to their national government for a solution to all kinds of different things that they're not able to solve. And that new UN would be a focal point. You could go there and do advocacy there or activism or contact your representative um, and be involved on a global level to help manage that in a good way. So I think it's interesting to see how how that relates to individual feelings of uh, uh, being part of something. So mm -hmm. for example, I'm Dutch, I live in the Netherlands. Netherlands is in the EU, and I actually identify maybe more as a European than as someone who's Dutch, mm -hmm. at least in some ways. And I think that has drastically changed over time for many people. Mm -hmm. So I think if you ask the same question like 60 years ago, nobody would identify as, as being European. And even after the EU was founded, it would probably take a couple of decades before, be, before people would identify as being European. But at some point, uh, you start seeing, you know, you start to vote for a European Council, for, I mean, for a European Parliament, for example, or you see that the EU is doing things like standardizing USB-C cables in devices, which may seem like a small thing, but it makes your life a little bit easier. We now have one type of currency in the EU, which makes your life a little bit easier. I can now use my uh, wireless uh, internet in other countries in the EU, again, which makes my life a little easier. And there's just not been any war since in the EU since it started. So, so many good things. And I hope that this inspires more people to be open to this idea of having a global government where instead of just doing like my Netherlands 
elections and EU elections. I would also have like UN elections. And I would, you know, vote on a UN party. And there's like a UN president that I feel actually represents me because I understand what they're talking about. And I'm, you know, aware of the types of discussions they're having. But it would be a little difficult because it increases the amount of things you have to follow and identify as. So I got my council, my province, my country, the EU, and now also the UN. And maybe all of these have their own elections that I need to understand and I need to who know who represents me. It's 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 a lot to take in. Yeah. How how can we manage this? How can we do like democratic elections on an international level? Uh it still needs to get worked out. I don't have all the details. And, you know, part of the challenge would be harmonizing the various types of election systems in all the different countries. Um, so it's it's got to get worked out. But I think in a citizenship way, I mean, you're right that it would add one more layer of um, governance for people to keep track of. But they're already doing the handful of things you just mentioned. You know, the local, the state or province, the national, like it's just adding one more and we all just do our best. So some of us are more focused on national level things. Some are more focused on local things just based on their interest level or abilities or or whatever. You know, I, I think it's rare that an individual person is well-balanced across all of those levels of government. You know, they just kind of have their intuitive focal point of where they feel like most matched for their engagement and they engage there. And so as long as at all these levels, you have enough people engaged there to make a difference, then, you know, things can happen. I don't think it's really a big preposterous thing. It's just adding one more layer to what we've already got so that they, we have the ability to globally coordinate, you know. Here in the United States where I rise, live, well, I just share that here in the U.S. where, where I live, there's a, been a process similar to what you talk about in the EU, being a European, where you now feel like a European, I mean, the United States started as 13 um, separate states that were fiercely independent and didn't know how to get along um, and would sometimes have arguments with each other. And now, like an American doesn't really question the fact that we have a U.S. government. Um, you know, there are some people who uh, dislike the federal government, you know, but that's a small percentage. And even those who are most resistant to the federal government are still flying an American flag and proud to be an American. So, you know, the concept of like Wisconsin going to war with Michigan, it's crazy. Like you wouldn't see that. Like nobody would even think of that, right? And so that it's manageable, it's doable. It's just a process, you know? I think I think we can be we can be hopeful about this, but I also think that the, the the time it takes to get these like cultural changes, to get people to identify as you know one abstraction layer higher, or to be open to having you know 
United Nations government actually collecting taxes, right? If, you, if, if it gets really real, I think there's going to be a lot of friction. Mm-hmm. And uh, the time it takes for us to set up such institutions, I think, is going to be too long because the problems that we're facing right now require way more urgent action. So, for mm-hmm. example, uh, the, you, you mentioned earlier that AI is developing uh, exponentially, right? The capabilities are growing really, really rapidly. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, the systems that we already have today can be considered superhuman. I mean, the reason why we use ChatGPT or GPT-4 is because in many ways it knows more than we do. It mm-hmm. is more creative in many ways than we are. That's why we use it, right? In many ways. And if we if, if we look at expert estimates, uh, we are likely to get to human-level AI across the board, not just in these specific tasks, tasks that JGBT is good in. It's probably going to happen in 2025, 2026. That's the current average estimate. That mm-hmm. average estimate has dropped from 2055 in just two years. Mm-hmm. So in just two years' time, the, the average estimate has dropped from like 50 years, like 30 years to about three years. To me, that's that's absolutely insane that such an amount of process progress has been you know achieved and this has huge policy implications because Mm -hmm. this means that we need to act rapidly we need to act fast Mm -hmm. so like a couple of years ago it was more hopeful that we could probably have some sort of ai governance united nations type of organization and right now i feel like it's less likely to happen because we have way less time Mm -hmm. to organize such a thing yeah which is why it's so important that we, you know, communicate urgency and mm-hmm. uh, get people to understand, especially like the powerful people who can actually do something about this, that they need to internalize the danger that we're actually in, that mm-hmm. they need to act as if they're trying to save their own lives and the lives of their own children. Because right now I don't see that type of psychological, you know, urgency, that actual understanding that emotional understanding that we are in danger i don't see that in our leaders mm-hmm. yeah. when, it, when we're talking about ai yeah that's that to me is even more scary than the risk itself yeah it's definitely tricky stuff um you know regarding the speed at which we need to move um you know this this UN reform um, stuff we talked about and and what the human survival project is pushing for that's gonna be a many year process like that's a big shift it's gonna take a little while we're gonna need a lot of solutions in the meantime to handle AI and some other things but this concept I've been thinking about with the new United Nations or other agencies that regulate technology is in order to deal with the speed of change you have to get authority out of the slow legislative function and into an executive function that can move quickly that has the authority to press pause on something so there is a society-wide process through the legislature of really considering all the aspects of how a technology will play out in society and, and put some guardrails there. But you could nominate, you know, a committee of, say, 15 
super smart experts on AI. And if a majority of them agree we need to press pause, then we're going to press pause until we can all just like catch up. Like we need to give somebody that authority to move quickly. And artificial intelligence is just one technology that we need that ability with. So there are additional things like genetic engineering, which could create the next pandemic virus on purpose or by accident, which could just devastate humanity. And then we've got all the many technologies that will be invented with artificial intelligence. So we've got this flood of new innovation coming our way that will be possible as AI rolls out. People are going to cook up all kinds of things that we have not even imagined yet into a society that's not equipped to regulate things. And so what I'm imagining is that, you know, in the meantime, in the United States, in the EU, hopefully some other countries, we can have an agency on technology, which is broad and has expertise in all the different disciplines, you know, whether it's digital tech, biology, you know, chemistry, psychology, political science, philosophy, you know, like all these different disciplines involved in this agency who can keep an eye on what's going on out there and if they see something come along that that looks dangerous it has the authority to press pause until we can figure it out and do it safely you know um, right yeah, it seems like an absolutely no-brainer to have something like that implemented right we want someone in charge who has like a break that they can pull at some point um, the question then also remains is, uh, when do you press that break exactly? Because let's say, let's say you have some sort of conditional pausing, right? Some, it's, it's called coordinated pausing, this idea. That there's a couple of organizations, they're building AI, and at some point uh, during training or after training, they do evaluations. They're going to run tests on their AI model to see whether that model has specific, potentially dangerous capabilities. So we, we talked earlier about cybersecurity risk, right? So let's say you have an AI and you can see at some point during training, it has this capability to discover novel zero day exploits. At that point, you know, like press the alarm button and that's the start of a coordinated pause. So all these other parties involved, they're also gonna press the brakes. And then you have like this dangerous model and you're not supposed to publish it. Are we then safe? I'm not actually entirely sure whether this type of approach is safe enough. Even if we like implemented the pause correctly, right? Which is already a, 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 a difficult thing to do probably. But if we have, if we wait until these dangerous models exist, that means that that dangerous model actually is created somewhere. And it can be created with the hardware that then exists. So maybe someone else could also create it quite easily. Mm. These weights then exist on the servers of that AI company that created that model, which means it can leak. We've already seen AI models leaked earlier. For example, Facebook's or Meta's Llama model was leaked uh, soon after it finished training. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we, we can see that, that the stakes are even higher with more powerful models. We can see adversaries trying to gain access to these types of models, and maybe they leak on some sort of torrent website sometime later, or like a uh, rogue nation state gets access to it. It's all sort of things in which this can go wrong. 
the, the, by far the safer option, instead of waiting until we get to dangerous models, is to pause before we get to dangerous models and we actually make it difficult for people to create a potentially world-ending technology. Mm -hmm. So what we're proposing at Pause AI is right now models aren't yet dangerous, so we should pause before they are dangerous. And we should not just pause the, the, these, these largest training runs, but we should also make it very difficult for anyone to do such a training run. So we can do things like compute tracking, right? You make sure that every time someone buys this H100 NVIDIA GPU chip, which is used for training AI models, or only the largest AI models, you, you, you track that and you make sure that if there's some actor that orders a whole lot of these machines, you know, they have to register and you're going to monitor how they're using that. So they're not training some dangerous model, for example. You could do a licensing scheme where only certified actors get access to the technology required to train a model, which is probably better than not having a licensing scheme. Um, and you could also think about preventing people from making algorithmic improvements, because right now, most of the improvements in AI are coming from scaling. So like the amount of data used to train GPT-4, for example, uh, is absolutely huge. It's like almost all of the internet. Nobody knows exactly, or I mean, most people don't know, I don't have access to knowing what exactly is used for training, but we do know the amount of data used to train these systems is absolutely huge. And this is how we are currently scaling these systems, use more compute, create bigger models, use more amount of data. Uh, but it could very well happen that at some point, scientists will discover a way of training these models way more efficiently. So these are called algorithmic improvements. And we had such an algorithmic improvement in 2017 with the transformer architecture, which is currently being used in virtually all of these, you know, popular, big, impactful AI technologies. And it seems very much possible that at some point in the future, someone will find such an algorithm again that will give us like a 10x or maybe a 100x type of improvement which means that as soon as that model is out there people with smaller amounts of compute will also be able to create dangerous ai and this is what makes uh pausing even more difficult uh in reality than only you know, restricting training runs at, 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 at AI apps, we should probably also restrict the access, the access to uh, these algorithms themselves. So what we are also proposing is legislation, international legislation, that would ban the publication of uh, novel training architectures or algorithmic improvements. This is a bit more of a taboo, um, but there are already certain classes of information that we have out outlawed. And to me, it makes a lot of sense to do the same thing with uh, with AI training architectures. You know, I can um, easily picture how regulation of physical hardware would work. You know, the advanced chips that you talk about. It's harder for me to picture how we would regulate the algorithms themselves. Is there a technical way to do that? these algorithmic improvements that you're talking about? Um, there are some suggestions as to how to do this technically. So for example, maybe inside uh, the, these, these GPUs, you could make an architecture to prevent them from being used in specific ways. For example, there are these graphics cards that are 
unable to mine Bitcoin, for example, right? It's been mm -hmm. specifically made not to support that type of algorithm, but these are finicky at best, these types of mm -hmm. breaks. Um, but I think there are already domains of information that we have effectively outlawed. For example, child pornography, right? You're not allowed to create child pornography. You're not allowed to own it. You're not allowed to share it. I think if we could use similar types of legislation for uh, algorithmic improvements, we could actually, you know, just rely on the systems we already have. I don't think this needs to be done at a UN level necessarily. Individual countries can use their own their own systems of preventing that people do this. But the important thing is that it is actually forbidden. So. AI companies have no incentive to share their algorithms. Scientists have no incentive to to share, share their algorithms. Um, so at the very least, you you push it underground and you delay uh, how fast. You're basically trying to slow down the amount of progress over time. So there is more time to think about how do we do this safely. Mm -hmm. And besides finding a way of how to do AI safely, we also have to think, this is a whole different type of discussion, we have to think about what do we do with such power? Because a super intelligent AI, if we have actually get to this point of having something that vastly outsmarts all of humanity combined, which is what most scientists are saying is probably going to happen at some point, what, what will we do with that technology? What will we do with that power? Who is going to wield it and what are they going to do? We're currently on a trajectory where this amount of power, where this, you know, godlike power, if you will, ends up in the hands of AI companies, of some random AI company that just happens to discover this first. And having a super intelligence under your control, right? If we manage to, if they manage to make it safely, it would still mean a power that is able to topple governments, right? Invent new types of weapons, invent radically new types of technology, manipulate virtually all of humanity. I mean, these, these, the things that you could do with a super intelligence are beyond comprehension. The amount of power it would give anyone who would actually wield this is absolutely insane. So to me, we have, we have two big questions. How do we make it safe? So the AI doesn't pursue its own objective. And number two is how do we make sure we, we, we control it democratically? It's not going to be, it's not going to end up in the hands of someone you don't trust, right? I don't think anybody should have that type of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just raised about 10 questions in my mind. Um, <laughs> let me Sorry. let me try to prioritize. No, it's it's wonderful. I appreciate all of what you just said. Um, it, you just asked, you know, how do we demo, uh, control it democratically so that we don't have this concentration of power in just a few companies? That's actually an argument that I hear people use about open sourcing AI and making it more available to more people, which then in my mind would make it all far more dangerous because we then have these powerful tools all over the place and who knows who's going to use them. So there is this tension in the landscape about like you don't want to concentrate power, but having it concentrated at least you can keep an eye on it you can regulate it you know it's easier to keep an eye on five big companies than it is to keep an eye on thousands and so we i don't know the way i'm starting to see it is that that concentration might actually help on the safety side but it's got to have governments 
really managing this and our government representing, you know, society at large and incorporating all the different, you know, factors. Um, so it's, it's I, I truly agree stuff. with this. I like the, the, the whole discussion about open source AI to me is very difficult to navigate on a personal level because uh, I am a huge open source enthusiast. Like my, my software company, we only create open source tools. I'm like this loud advocate of doing things open source. And I actually appreciate the fact that there are, you know, people who are creating open source AI models from like a personal level. I like having that access to that type of technology. But indeed, if these things become more, more capable, at some point they will reach a set of capabilities that are that is very dangerous. And we could reach that moment pretty soon. Like being able to discover these cybersecurity vulnerabilities is one of the risks. Being able to create new types of biological agents, you know, or to assist people in releasing a virus from a lab would also be like, if you have that capability in a system, that is dangerous on its own. It doesn't matter who controls it. It's just dangerous if it exists. Ideally, nobody has it. But if people are to have it, then rather it's going to be like a small group of people or a controllable group of people. And I think many people who are very uh, anti, anti AI safety, because there's a lot of people, especially on Twitter, who are very anti AI safety, they fear that the power of AI will end up in some sort of misaligned actor. And that could be a company, but that could also be a nation state. So this is also a worry that I don't know exactly how, how to respond to. I think, you know, nobody should have this power in the first place. Maybe we can find a way of governing such a power if we think long and hard about this and have a lot of discussions about this. I don't have the answer, but I do know that it's the safest option to say right now, we're not going to allow at least these companies to create a super intelligent AI until we figure that question out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, you're pointing out that our society has um, poor mechanisms for governing itself and making important decisions, especially proactive decisions about the future. And as I hear a lot of people talk about AI, they, um, they might promote it because we need these tools to solve our important global threats. You know, so they'll say we need AI to, you know, cure cancer and cure diseases or promote health or educate kids or, you know, fix climate change or like all the other things. Um, but our existential threats that we face did not happen through a lack of technology. Like the things we face are because we're not able to coordinate ourselves. And all these problems are going amok, you know, just going wrong because we don't have governance that like ties society together and can make a rational decision in order to keep us safe. And so it's like the lack of those systems is where I want to focus because, you know, you release powerful stuff into a society that's not ready for it. I don't know. A lot of things can go wrong. So Yeah, I agree. I do think that maybe there are some problems which have technical solutions. So maybe we can indeed at some point use AI to cure diseases or you know, maybe even lead to technologies that can help us fix climate change. 
But I think the way many people are now looking at this is this is this this is a reason we shouldn't pause. And this basically negates all of the safety arguments and the dangers from AI systems. And I think that's you know very uh very naive in many ways. Um at, at some point you have to basically make a sort of judgment call, like how likely do you think AI is to go wrong? How likely do you think it's going to go well? And if there was maybe like a one in thousand chance that it was going to, you know, end horribly and everybody dies, then maybe I can see why, why you'd, you know, want to take that risk and say, okay, then we have this huge upside, right, of maybe fixing diseases and climate change. Uh, but the average estimates of how likely it is for things to go wrong are about 14% right now from AI researchers. If you ask AI safety researchers, it's more like 30%. And some of the people, like, most in the know hover between, you know, 50 and 90%. It's 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 pretty crazy which types of risks people are talking about. I mean, mm -hmm. if you were to board a plane and there was a 1% risk of crashing, no way you would enter. Even at, you know, 0.1%, it would be completely illegal to have such a dangerous thing in existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, so this begs a question for me um, because my work is so focused on these enormous existential threats that um, we could use some added intelligence to solve. Um, I guess, how bad would the world situation need to get where you would say, all right, let's just go for it and see if the AI can fix it? <laughs> like, ooh, that's interesting. Like, let's say there is, um, we got a message, right? There's an alien ship coming our way. And we have like, we have like two years to respond to that. The AI, the, the, the artificial, I mean, the aliens are going to get here and maybe they're going to be, you know, evil. We don't know. Then we need to like maximize our, our tech tree as fast as possible. And then I'd be like, okay, maybe we should take that risk. But but it's 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 I think it's a really wild situation. Maybe when when climate change, you know, when there's like a, a runaway effect, where in like two years the temperatures would rise with twenty degrees and everybody would die anyway, I would also be probably okay. If there's like a way larger risk, hmm. then maybe. How about you? What type of risks would you see before you're like, okay, let's let's press play and uh, let's go. Yeah, I'm I'm still working that out for myself. I mean, I see what you mean about say a runaway climate change where if we reach a point where well we've tried everything else. You know, this is sorry to use a football analogy, but a Hail Mary pass at the end of a game is when you're about to lose and you just launch the ball and you hope your guy catches it. <laughs> and you know, this would be the Hail Mary pass. It would be like we're obviously screwed. Let's see if the AI can fix it. You know, I don't know exactly where that would be. I mean, hopefully that would be a fairly democratic decision between all of humanity and all the countries. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I trust Google to make that decision. Um, but like even now, I'm thinking about ways that artificial intelligence could be insanely valuable to solving our threats. So um, there's management of human affairs that are just so complex 
that humans can't quite wrap their head around it. So like one application I've been thinking about is um, we need to reduce our overconsumption of resources from the earth. You know, humanity is currently using the equivalent of 1.8 Earths. We only have one. And so this is a result of our globally interconnected economy going gangbusters and consuming the planet to make stuff. And so the only way we're going to survive is if we can cut back our consumption. But simply begging individuals to be nice and care it's just not going to work. It's all too complicated. I can't even go in the store and, and like buy a package responsibly. I don't know where these 40 ingredients came from or how they made them. Like it's just impossible in its complexity. And so to manage the economy to reduce overconsumption might benefit from artificial intelligence that really can go through massive amounts of data to um, constrain consumption in a way that's fair enough that doesn't penalize anyone too much could maybe get the pricing structures right of a whole bunch of different resources and products you know so that you can make the bad things more expensive and make the cheap, you know, the good things cheaper, you know, but that's really like, that's a complicated task to do that. That's probably beyond the mental capability of my congressional representative, you know, and so that's maybe an AI could solve something like that. I I, I do think that there's a lot of like these unintuitive applications of AI where we can, you know, just give it a wicked problem and it could solve it. Uh, but the problem with intelligence is that, you know, if you can solve a problem like that, you could probably also do something that's very, very disruptive, of mm-hmm. d- destructive or disruptive. And that capability means insane amounts of power. So even if we can think of, like, for every good thing you can think of, you can probably think of a bad thing for an intelligence to be able to do. And one question that I always end up asking myself is what would happen if the capability exists, right? If, if you, have, you have a capability of, you know, solving complex problems and you, you, you have that capability in the world, what type of world will that end up with? And I think people like Eliezer Yuskowski have thought long and hard on this issue and basically come to the conclusion that, well, it converges onto an AI taking over from humanity, which is a subject we haven't yet talked about, but I thought it was really yeah. in, important to also talk about this specific risk. Uh, many people, at least here in the Netherlands, dismiss the whole existential AI takeover risk as being completely sci-fi and nonsensical. But luckily, a lot of scientists have signed statements saying that explicitly this risk is something that governments need to worry about uh, too. And it is my worry that it may be a very logical thing from an evolutionary perspective that at some point uh, we are going to be replaced by something that is more capable at you know, modifying the universe. In a way, the universe is controlled by the thing that is most intelligent. 
Uh, right now, humans are most intelligent, which is why we're in charge, which is why we've turned everything into houses and streets and supermarkets, etc. And at some point, maybe something more intelligent will come along and that will have other types of goals. Maybe it wants to turn everything into data centers and solar panels. And uh, what is very likely is that the thing that that will want is going to differ in some way from what we want to have in our system. Also, there's reason to believe that from an evolutionary perspective, uh, we are actually selecting for things that are self-replicating and uh, power grabbing. So if you have like 1 million AIs, right? And 999,999 of them are completely obedient. They do what you ask and they don't try to take over or whatever. But if for any type of random reason, one instance has an incentive or has a desire to replicate itself or just prevent itself from being turned off, you have a huge problem. And that, like, that misaligned one is the one that ends up taking over. So in many ways, I think that uh, an AI takeover is like an attractor state. It's like a, a stable, stable equilibrium. It's, it's a likely outcome. That to me is a very, very depressing thought because it means that we can probably only delay the inevitable or steer it in some way, but that there's always like this, this, this lurking danger of something more intelligent taking uh, control from humanity. Yeah. What, what, is your, what are your thoughts on this? Do you share this concern? I do. Um, and, you know, I compare this with humans treatment of other species in the world which um it, you know i think a lot of people um who are criticized for their concern about existential risk here are framed as like you know they're afraid of the killer robots that's going to go evil and like try to kill us i cannot discount that possibility <laughs> no one can but what seems very likely to me or very possible is that an AI would treat us humans like humans treat other species. So like right now we're destroying the planet and it's not like anyone said, hey, let's kill the planet. We hate it. You know, let's get rid of all the nature. It, nobody said that or even wanted that. It's just that nature is extraneous. Nature is not the primary goal. You know, our primary goal was making stuff. And so we take resources and we kill nature. And, you know, I try to think about what an AI takeover could look like if it happened. And it's very hard to imagine because, well, it's never happened before. We don't know how it'll play out and it would be an intelligence that we can't even understand. So it'd be sort of similar to how there are orangutans in um, the, palm, the uh, rainforest in Indonesia and Malaysia that are getting killed as we like destroy rainforest so that we can grow more palm oil to put in our candy bars and our cookies and our soap and our fuel, right? And we didn't mean to kill orangutans. That wasn't the goal. But they have all they can, they see the forest getting cut down, but they don't know why we're doing it. 
yeah, they just see like these huge machines enter their living area and they have like no way of stopping them. There's just a bulldozer and, you know, a guy with a huge motorized saw. And they will never understand that they we were, you know, we we're basically doing that to use shampoo at some point, yeah. you know, to turn their forest into palm oil to use for whatever. E even uh, if we shared the same yeah. language and could communicate with them, there's no way they would understand global economics. They, like they would still be clueless, right? So I think we would be that type of clueless about what would happen if, you know, um, an AI sort of took over. I, you know, it's most likely we have no idea what's going on here. All we know is that all our systems went haywire. The food isn't showing up anymore. The trucking system can't work. You know, our electricity grid went down. Our internet is goofy, like all these tools we use to now manage our lives would just go offline. And, you know, I don't know if that leads to extinction or not, but at least would lead to a ton of hardship, economic depression, probably violence, a lot of hunger. Like, <laughs> it's just a situation we really don't want. Yeah, so I think that that scenario that you're describing of all our devices no longer working and basically some degree of social collapse following from that as a result is, is very likely. Uh, but it's probably not because of a takeover risk, but, but because of like the cybersecurity risk. Like if you have one asshole who has access to like this very competent cybersecurity AI and they use it to write a piece of malware that targets like all the open source kernels and finds a bunch of zero days and just spreads itself in the wild and turns off all these devices at some simultaneous moment. Uh, yeah, we're just, we end up with chaos. But we'll probably make it as a species. I think if we have a takeover scenario, an AI will probably not disable all devices because that AI is still dependent on, you know, silicon substrates and data centers working. So if the data center where the AI is running is turned off, the AI has a problem. So I think if an AI will do a takeover, it will probably do it covertly so you wouldn't notice it. And it would slowly accrue uh, power until it has like enough power to make sure it, it, it won't be turned off. So maybe it will, you know, design, create new designs for chip substrates and leak that to ASML or whatever. Maybe it will create new robot designs and leak that to a robot manufacturer. Uh, it, it's probably going to influence the real world subtly first until it has enough control and then it can actually uh, take over. There are also scenarios where it creates like a biological agent that just makes people more receptive to incoming messages. So it just mm. cr creates like a human virus uh, that, you know, alters our brain in a slight way where we're just more receptive to a certain type of messaging. And maybe, maybe there's some sort of uh, exploit in the human brain where with a certain type of message, you can just inf influence m people like, I know that someone uh, with, you know, good control of creating fake voice and video stuff can probably manipulate me. Like if my phone is going to ring and somebody, well, it sounds like my girlfriend and she's in distress uh, and she's asking me to do something, then I will probably do that specific thing. I think many people are exploitable through the devices we already own. So there are so many attack factors. There are so many ways something more intelligent than us can take control. Like the things that I'm currently talking about are things that, you know, humans have thought of. A super intelligent system can probably think of something more efficient 
uh, more, you know, less prone to uh, ending up wrong. So it's probably going to be very weird. It's like you can't predict how a superintelligence will beat you in the same way you can't predict how uh, Kasparov will beat you at chess. I mean, you can't predict his move, but you can predict the outcome. And the outcome is you lose. Humanity will lose from superintelligence if it's like us or them. And that's, that's, yeah, that's quite a fundamental thing about something that is by definition more intelligent than we are. Hmm. Great. <laughs> it sounds like fun. <laughs> oh man, it's so, let's so fun. Let's just dive into the future and enjoy it, you know? Um, yeah, let's, let's, let's just go, man. Let's just... Yeah, let it rip. Sometimes I, I really don't understand why so many people uh, who are confronted to these types of arguments are can be so incredibly dismissive of them. There's just such a broad range of risks from AI, even if you don't believe the takeover risks, and even if you think like the biohazard risk is also bullshit, there's got to be like at, at least some of these risks that would make intuitive sense to you, right? Mm -hmm. But still, there are people who just completely in denial of every pos possible risk. People like Yann LeCun from Facebook, who's so obsessed with, you know, this idea that everything is going to magically work out. It's like a really optimistic message. And many people will really like to hear that type of message. But to me, it sounds, it sounds incredibly dismissive and naive. It's not like they have real arguments against, you know, uh, all of these situations. Yeah. It has to be some sort of psychological phenomena where people just really don't like to think of the hopelessness of being confronted with uh, such yeah. a dangerous technology. You know, I would actually love for someone to do some research around the psychology of all this. Because even among AI researchers, for instance, I hear so many um, public comments in the articles I read and podcasts and whatever that I consume. Um, it seems like an argument between optimists and pessimists. And I wish that each person speaking, I could have their personality profile attached to it, right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it seems to me that, you know, some people just say like, oh, yeah, it's great. You know, tech is wonderful. It'll solve everything. And they're just purely optimistic. And then there can be other people expressing concern who are just panicky people. They're anxious. They're afraid of everything. And that's why they're saying what they're saying. And it's hard to really piece out who is the rational, you know, who's taking a rational look at it, thinking about it clearly. Um, it's just really complicated because there's so much psychology in this space. And I don't know quite how to work that out yet, you know? I do have some sense on... on, on the, the people who make up the group of who are concerned, because uh, I know that, you know, when we started protesting, we doing pause AI protests, we share these protests on Twitter, Twitter and stuff. And many people said things like, yeah, you're just, you know, pessimists and you're just anti-technology. But the group of people who were protesting, virtually everyone in our Discord server, is uh, would consider themselves a techno-optimist, right? They, they love technology, they love progress. Most of them either work on in a technological field and have always been fascinated by human progress. So to me, it feels like in maybe unintuitively, uh, it's, it's a bit weird that, that the group of pause AI people 
is not actually a group of pessimists. I would definitely not consider myself to be uh, a pessimistic type of person. I think most people who know me know me as like a really optimistic, uh, cheerful guy. It's just this specific mm -hmm. thing where I think, okay, the default outcome is everybody dies. It's a very doomy message. But I don't think it's necessarily something that has to do with our innate bias towards being an optimist or, or being a pessimist. If anything, maybe, I think it's actually inverted. Because if you are really optimistic, it is easier to consider the possibility that things will end well, even if you face huge risks. So maybe I'm a naive optimist in that I believe that maybe we can pause this thing as humanity. And the pessimists are those who say, yeah, no way you're going to pause. We're just going to run ahead. No way, no way it's going to stop, right? But I'm not entirely sure how, you know, how that balances out in the end. I would also love to see studies, uh, studies in this because I think it's one of the most important issues of our time, not just the existential risk, but also how do humans deal with this? Mm -hmm. do, do you remember the movie Don't Look Up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you seen one? Yeah, I have. I, I remember watching it and feeling like, oh, this is a, this. I didn't like the movie because I thought it was really unrealistic. Like, mm. I was convinced that if people are confronted by like a huge asteroid destroying everything, they're just going to listen to the scientists and you know they're going to stop it and do whatever they can to prevent it. And now that I've done pause AI work, I realize that that movie is actually quite an accurate representation of reality. And that to me has been, you know, a really bitter lesson. I mean, most people really do stick their head in the sand and just don't want to think about uh, horrible outcomes. And yeah, the biases behind that to me are very fascinating. I've written a short article on this on the Pulse.ai website. There's like a psychology of X risk where I dive into some of these dynamics, basically. Mm -hmm. And, that, and the thing is, I don't really have an answer on how to how to navigate these psychological biases, just that they make the problem that much more harder to solve. And we need to be aware of them. And we need to, you know, especially politicians who are in charge, need to be aware of their own biases that may, may prevent them from taking uh, sufficient action. Yeah, exactly. I'm right there with you. I want to step back a topic, if you're willing. Um, we're talking about the trade-offs between the potentially positive benefits of artificial intelligence to help us solve our existential threats or whatever else versus the dangers. Could one possibility there be if we develop the right kind of public policy that we need, can we keep AI narrow instead of general? Like, can we say, okay, we're going to continue progress on this, but only in these defined areas where we really actually need it. So we're not going to just do this wide open thing where companies can make money however they want to make money with it for all kinds of things that maybe not are not that essential. And, and so make a narrow tool that will address our climate change risks or address our pandemic risks or you know that kind of a thing is that do you think that's even technically possible or doable that's a very interesting and also difficult question um let me answer first by saying that pause ai supports a ban only on models above a certain capability threshold or a certain model size so what we're currently proposing does not influence existing models. 
it only influences training of newer models, which basically means every single narrow AI type application that you can currently think of would remain legal uh, with our proposal. However, I'm not entirely sure whether that is a stable universe. If we define these models not by you know capability thresholds or size, uh, but we say that whether they're narrow or broad, I don't know exactly how we could define that other than you know things like model size. And um, I'm also quite skeptical as to what type of market dynamics will emerge when you have such a policy in place. Let's say we have some sort of definition of a general versus a narrow model. That will mean that companies and everybody who's an actor in a market will have a strong incentive to make their narrow models as broad as possible while still complying to regulation. So you get this dynamic where these companies are like, like trying to push as far as possible. Uh, and we're like hoping that the policy measures in place will be enough. It seems like a very dangerous game. So I think that even if we have our own policy measures in place, and maybe we also ban smaller general models, we're still in a risky situation. It's at the very least, it means we need to tread very carefully and consider all of these, you know, ways in which policy measures can maybe not be enough. Yeah. I mean, you know, another potentially positive benefit I hear about is around our environmental mess and how AI might um, invent new materials for us. So that instead of tearing down trees or mining from the earth or all that, maybe, you know, it takes garbage and reconstructs it into building material or packaging or whatever. Um, and, and we could greatly reduce our impact on the earth. So that, to me, would have enough survival benefit for society that I'm kind of thinking about, you know, maybe we should do that. But that would be an example of where we'd have to make sure it's narrow. Like, I don't want that thing to just go off and do whatever. But that type of problem is maybe similar to the narrow AI we've seen around, say, protein folding, which was a big mm -hmm. development in biology recently that AI can map the structure of proteins in a way humans could not previously. And so, I don't know, that that's the kind of zone I'm thinking about where it's not as black and white for me. Um, and I'm really struggling to figure out, like, is there a way to use this stuff for the things we need that's safe enough? I think that there probably are a lot of applications for AI that still have a lot of unused potential, uh, where we can use it to, you know, make our lives way better and solve all sorts of problems. And probably many of these narrow applications should remain legal and safe. Um, but I'm also saying that it will be difficult to, you know, paint a clear border. And if we like create such a border, it's really important that we err on the side of caution. So we probably need to be a little bit more careful when we have to, when we're like in a gray area, we just make sure that we're on the careful side of that gray area. And probably many of these narrow models would be completely, should be, uh, should remain completely legal. Mm, yeah. Yeah, but maybe built such that a um, consumer cannot string together 30 narrow models 
<laughs> to create some new capability by hitching them all together. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's also a very, very difficult thing, like the policy implications. Uh, we're currently pushing for the banning of AI models above uh, you know, a threshold of 10 to the 25 flops of compute, which is roughly to the level of GPT-4. Um, but I can, I can imagine that there are definitions of GPT-4 where it doesn't quite hit that bar because GPT-4 might be like a multi-model type of AI, right? And then you maybe all of these individual models would remain under that threshold. And maybe uh, we in the future, we have AIs that consist of 1000 models, which all of them are like 10 to the 24 size, which is under our threshold, but combined will still lead to super intelligent capabilities. So I think it's really important that, you know, we, we, we remain a sense of flexibility, retain a sense of flexibility and policy measures can adapt to novel innovations. Mm -hmm. But as you said in the beginning, the most important thing that we have this break, we need some international authority to say, stop, this is enough, this is too dangerous. And as of now, we don't have anything like that, not even remotely. Yeah. Tell me your thoughts on why we need international regulation of this, as opposed to the current approaches of going to the US Congress or going to the European Union to regulate. Um, why do we need international? I think national regulation is probably a good thing. So it's good to see that like the AI Act is currently now being defended to, you know, make sure that foundation models, like the biggest models are still regulated. Uh, but in the end, countries are, uh, are competitive actors. They compete with other nations and AI is this technology that spits out gold, right? It is just, it, it can give you a lot of power, it can give you a lot of economic benefits. So countries will have a very strong innate desire to always maximize the amount of capability advancements. And that will limit the amount of safety uh, policy that they are willing to uh, imbue on their own, uh, own nation. So, so we have this dynamic where we have a bunch of selfish actors, which are nations. And yes, to a degree, they wanna protect their own citizens, but when the costs are completely international, similar with climate change, they are likely to choose, you know, economics, economic favors over safety, at, li at least not value safety enough because they're only like one of the many actors. So this, this competitive dynamic is, at, is the root cause of why we absolutely need international re regulation for this. Yeah. But I don't want to like, uh, you know, dissuade legislators from doing local policy because right now if like only California pauses that would already mean so much for for the world it will set a precedent right others can follow they can experiment with legislation also very important so we need lo local regulations maybe to start the thing off but sooner or later we're going to need an international level because local it won't hold out for long yeah exactly well here in the United States when uh, people talk about AI safety and constraining uh, companies. They say, well, what about China? You know, like, well, what if we hold back, but then China just continues? You know, and, and whether you believe that concern or not, like, it's there, right? And China might have the same in other countries. They'll be like, well, why should I hold back? But then everybody else is going to do it anyway. It, like, I would be holding back, but not even solving the problem and just, you know, hurting my own economy. 
So, you know, you have to have some way to get everybody to do it at the same time and give people some assurance that if they restrain, others will also, you know, through enforcements. I mean, I think it has to be more than just simply, okay, we've all agreed. There has to be some penalty for going against the agreement or Absolutely. else it means nothing, you know? Yeah, you need to enforce such a treaty. You just, you, you can't expect companies or countries to willingly pause on their own just if you ask nicely no you need to you need to enforce it you need to make sure that there are penalties involved i think you can have economic sanctions i think you probably need to combine that uh with uh monitoring gpu so you need to prevent it from actually happening as well as you know having policy measures in place where you can uh give penalties and these penalties need to be sufficiently large that it really dissuades an actor from becoming like a rogue AI manufacturer. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think I think countries can do can do these things. They have measures. Uh, all it takes is a little bit of courage to actually implement this. Yeah. And right now, I don't think nobody actually dares to do this, and we're basically all waiting for a disaster to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll get a fire alarm and things will go wrong on a level that's not existential, uh, but high enough for us to, you know, uh, come together and realize that we can't, you know, ignore this risk. I just hope it's, you know, it won't be like a huge disaster first. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, maybe um, related to our talk earlier about how heavy it can be um, working on existential risks to humanity. Um, you know, it's challenging work. I feel um, intense emotions all the time. And, um, but there's a bright side to all this that I hang on to, is that I think, well, what I hope is that the human race is about to make a jump forward in its evolution. So, so far it has been reactive to the environment around it, you know, like what you can see with your eyes right in front of you, you know, and react to that. And for us to survive, we need the capability to plan for the future in an organized way to prevent threats before they happen and to have a global perspective and be thinking about the stuff beyond your eyesight. And, and these are things that are have historically been difficult for humans to do. <laughs> but we're developing the tools. We've got communications tools. We've got computing even. We can, you know, process data. We have science. You know, we have the growing tools to actually manage our own safety in a mature and responsible way. And so I think, you know, the coming years are going to be tough. <laughs> I don't see any way, easy way through the next couple decades. But what I hope is that as the alarms go off, as we see things going wrong, as we realize the challenging situation we've put ourselves in, we'll develop these new abilities to plan for the future you know, and, and think about stuff before it happens and, you know, analyze things better and communicate with each other better and coordinate better. You know, we're just going to have to or else we're screwed. Like, do we want to go extinct or do we want to learn how to do these things? 
I propose we learn how to do these things, you know? It seems like the easiest decision to make, right? <laughs> right. I think on a, on a collective level, we would all like intuitively agree that, yeah, of course we need to prevent, prevent extinction. It's just that we're like, we're not evolutionary trained to think on a collective level like that. Yeah. Uh, and we cannot miss the tools to do that. But I, by God, I hope you're right. And you know, we, we, we can learn in time. We can, you know, you know, make sure to make the right decision uh, and prioritize our safety over, you know, all of the mundane things that get us racing faster to the cliff. Yeah. You know, maybe, um, you know, and by noting the argument between optimists and pessimists that I so often hear, and these are typically based on predictions. You know, some people predict the future will be this way. Some people predict the future will be mm -hmm. that way. I have no idea what the future is going to be. And nobody does, right? <laughs> and so all we can do is just do the work. Just work. <laughs> just show up every day and do your work and do something helpful, you know? And, and that's all we can do is just do the work and hope for the best. So... That's what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep working. So, Same for me. Same for me. I'm not going to give up on this fight yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, we've been talking for a while, but is there are there any last thoughts that we haven't covered? Anything that um, is missing from the conversation that you want to mention? Uh, well... Maybe I just want to give one message to the people listening. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, there's something you can do if you feel worried about any of the risks as we talked about. Um, there's just a very small group of people who are now actively trying to prevent the worst outcomes. And even if you just help out with writing a bunch of emails or help, you know, organize one small local event or attend a protest or share a bunch of flyers, you have a huge amount of impact. And I think that's that's a re really valuable, unique thing to feel. Feel the fact that your actions actually matter. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you want to help out, please do. Check out palsyaro.info and uh, yeah, I'll see you on the Discord. Yeah. And in the show notes to this episode, um, we'll put links to Pause AI and, you know, how to tap into their work and learn about them and, and get involved. So, well, Yub, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It was fascinating. I learned some things and I'm so appreciative of you and, and the work you're doing. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Shelby. I had a great time, too. Uh, hope to speak to you again later soon. Nice. And listeners, thank you for being here. And I'm glad you've um, enjoyed this conversation with us. Um, if you want to learn more about the Human Survival Project, um, come to our website, www.thehumansurvivalproject.org, and you can learn more. And I want to give a big thanks to a couple of our team members. Um, Adam Rostan does our video and audio editing of this show, and Alina Ko for her wonderful production um, assistance. And that does it for today. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon.